<clears throat> so what I, I'd like to start out with tonight <clears throat> is talk on uh, desire, which is uh, one of the uh, formative links in dependent origination. But uh, to get a sense of all the other links uh, and how they are operating uh, on an ongoing basis uh, as causal conditions for desire to arise. In fact, desire is, you might say, composed of these conditions. I'd just like you to uh, shut your eyes for a moment and just uh, take in, look at, look at the nature of your own experience in this moment. And uh, so it's a meditative moment in which you're just noticing, I mean, I, if I, as I point things out, I just want you to notice that they're happening within our consciousness. <clears throat> and the first thing, of course, is to notice you have a consciousness in which things can land. And it seems to uh, be uh, a unifying component in which determines that all things are landing within a particular perspective and particular arrangement and coordinated reference to life. And then I'd like you to notice uh, the senses that are coming in, the different, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the physical sensations, the thoughts that are coming in, and that you can get a sense that that's active within each one of us. And then I'd also like you to get a sense of contact, that if you bring your attention to a particular sense door, like hearing, the recognition that sound is arising occurs at contact. And then I'd like you to get a sense of the mental formations that exist alongside uh, and within or seemingly within consciousness, seemingly within consciousness. So the different expressions of mind that are arising, the thoughts, the reactions, the moods, the attitudes, the disposition, psychic disposition of yourself. And I would also like you to get a sense of the pervasiveness of ignorance within this mind we are now observing. So that so much of it runs on its own steam, runs on its own momentum, isn't acknowledged, isn't even perceived. And especially when you're often running down whatever adventure your life is determining in that moment, you're not even aware of what the mind is doing, except as an effect that the mind is having upon your particular physical body, perhaps, or direction you, or whatever psychology is manifesting. So most of it just remains hidden, remains ignorant. I'd also like you to get a sense of that each contact with each sense has a feeling associated with it. The um, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling that is associated with each contact at each sense door. So just pick a sense door and notice the feeling of it. And I'd also like you to get a sense of that that feeling is like bait in some ways. 
that we rally very quickly or we grasp a hold or we hook ourselves to that bait and start pulling the line of desire uh, when we are properly uh, in, in proper momentum to that feeling. And that feeling tone almost immediately within that tone arises the memory I've been here before and either a pleasant or unpleasant association with that memory which given that association then leads to greater reactivity about that memory either adversively or in pursuit of and grasping of so now I just uh, ask you to open your eyes <clears throat> in all of that where where are you where are you we claim to be the receiver of all of this action this momentum but when you look inside yourself uh, it's you're not at the table the ingredients are all there and you can even see them as they occur but there's no owner of those particular causal factors and yet somehow there's a sense of you within all of that that sense of you and so as we start building from feeling tones and start embellishing the feeling tones and moving into desire and grasping we'll also start coming becoming that sense of us starts becoming arising even at the level of feeling tones as there is some leaning into those tones there's a growing sense of of the accumulated me who has had similar experiences such as the one I'm just having and this uh, tremendous uh, conditioned response of our claiming ownership of it is sort of how we sum up the whole game and you can see why it's an aggregated experience claiming that we are somehow the uh, owners of that the receivers of all that so as we get into this sense of desiring as this momentum towards biting the bait of feeling occurs uh, you're going to have a greater sense of participation now as this snowball starts rolling down the hill with ever quickening speed and you'll begin to sense that dependent origination at this juncture now holds the first and second noble truth within it and as we'll talk about tonight uh, it's a very quickened pace that we're under now there's a feeding frenzy that's going on uh, and we're never left in complete isolation without ourselves for very long before this feeding frenzy just continues to steamroll its way through our consciousness it's not to be thought of as someone in there having this experience I was look I looked up what the conditions of snow are and the temperature has to be below 32 or below it has to have a certain humidity right there has to be upward movement of air around a low pressure system and when all of that comes together 
snow occurs. Now substitute desire for snow. When there are certain conditions that are occurring, which we have talked about now for all the weeks since January, the composite effect of all of that within ignorance, when we are not, when there is no perception, when there is no willingness to see, is desire. And the inevitability of desire, when left under the cloud of ignorance, is the claiming of self-reference to the entire product of all of that occurrence. That is where we claim our self-reference. But as we look, when we actually bring attention to our inward life, all we see are the products that have led ourselves to arrive. We don't see ourselves as anything else other away from other than those products. Yet somehow we still claim reference to those products as having ownership or receiving them or I have a mind, we say, when it is much truer to say that we are in the mind, of the mind. Not, we don't have a mind. We are a mental phenomenon of the mind. We are part of the product of the mental formation. So what happens here is very interesting, I think, because as we are starting to talk about feelings and moving away from feelings, so that we start embellishing the feeling tone. You see, we get have a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling, and there, in, there's the momentum of memory that comes, that enters that experience. And memory remembers how pleasant pleasant can be. And at this point, the pleasant that's arriving into our consciousness doesn't quite match the memory of what it could be. So there is a pushing or a grasping or a, an embellishment of that memory to get more out of it, like a good peach. I'm not sure how that fits in. but <laughs> So you just want to squeeze out every lasting piece of juice. And so... But the memory, but the, the pleasant experience is just what it is. The memory is not the pleasant experience that is occurring. It's the memory of a former experience that had a better ending than the present one. And so the memory takes present, precedent, precedent over the existing truth of the feeling to. Because the memory is better. Like, who wants to stay with this when I can have that? And so we start, then we, we take off. We, we go, this, we become abstract. We prefer the abstract as compared to the reality. And now we split, we split, you see. Now the mind splits itself into two. It leaves reality behind and fabricates what it really wants from this experience that it's not receiving. And it does so in such a way 
that forces, when, when, when the mind splits, when there's an abstract distance between what is occurring and we want to occur, there is a sense that somebody wants something to occur that is occurring. That sense of someone arises with the split from the, from the uh, reality to the abstract. When that splits off, that's when the sense of I arises. The sense of I is the memory of the previous time when it was better. And so the sense of I also contains the desiring component of the experience that we're having. Now there's struggle. There's a rub. There's friction. Because reality isn't giving us what we so wish. I mean, it would be wonderful if it did, but it just doesn't. And so there's a crashing. There's a component where you know, you're on the high dive your feet land and touch reality for a moment, and then you're off thinking about how great it would be if it were better, but now you're in the air above the diving board, and guess what? There's no water in the pool. (laughs) And you're coming straight down, right? So when you land, you land with a smack because it doesn't, your desire, your embellishment of what you really wanted from life isn't being offered. And so there is a conflict. And that really is the essence of what we keep losing ourselves in. But what's so amazing is not that we lose ourselves in it, but that we keep losing ourselves within that. That we keep going off the high dive, believing there's water that's going to catch us. And despite the bruises that life imposes upon us all, and the scar tissue that we all have, we are such that psychically that we really believe that much of the bruises have been our fault, not how we have believed life to be in our minds, but because we haven't been up to living it in the way we should live it if we really wanted the effects we thought were going to happen. We haven't had the right boss, the right spouse, the right this, the right that. And so it's, it's, we continue to infuse the whole scenario with ignorance. So what we're doing in dependent origination and what each of us are doing as Dharma students and why I say there is only one way is that we're calling ourselves back to sanity. That's it. No pretending here. No one is suggesting that we pretend our way through this to create a better reality that we send our consciousness to Maui (laughs) and bathe on the beaches there to feel relaxed. No one is suggesting that. But what we are suggesting, and we will continue to suggest, is that we actually show up for the processes that we have taken for granted and stop blaming ourselves for the lack of true fruit, of, of true results, You see, if the sense of I is dependent upon desire and we know that desire does not create the happiness we thought it was going to do, to forsake desire is to forsake the formation of me. And because that's so adherent to us, abhorrent to us, because we are so 
afraid of the implication of that, we keep compelling ourselves forward even when there's, it's like an alcoholic that just takes that final drink even though it, we know what the effect of that drink is going to be. And so we keep compelling ourselves forward with desire and you, there's something in us that sort of lags back and just, just doesn't quite believe that it's going to be as satisfying as we believe it to be any longer. Have you noticed that? That's, there's a kind of sadness that life brings, a sort of despairing sadness that comes and just having lived a certain number of years and realized that no matter where you go, even to Maui, whatever experience you have, it's just kind of going to be more of the same. Have you noticed that? Where when you were young, how excited you got when you took a trip? It's just like, because all we're ever going to have is sense data coming in. That's all that's ever going to be formed, no matter where we are, no matter how pleasant the circumstances. And so there's a kind of, kind of a, a sobering quality. But that sobriety is sobriety. It's not being drunk anymore from the context of experiences or the belief of the of what this experience will eventually give me, it's a sobriety. It's understanding that life is only this much. It can never be more than this. But that should be an invitation, not towards despair, but towards a critical observation, towards bringing to life the one thing we never have, and that is our observation, our willingness to see. Not ignorance, but conscious. Awareness. So if it's not like that, and that's, does that mean that it's all, you know, trash? Let's just trash the whole thing, do a suicide and you'd be done with it? Not at all. Not at all. The reality, so to speak, has been working to get us to the point in which we bottom out. It gets us to the point in which we be, are willing to consider sobriety. And at that point, it then invites us through the despair of it not having been what we thought it was going to be. It begins to show us what really is. And what really is, is not further despair. It's not a deflation. It's a height, it's a buoyancy, a lightness. It's a lightness. But one of the critical components that we all have to face is that we don't think we're up to that. We haven't been up to life. Life has defeated us sufficiently so that we haven't been able to make it work. What makes us think that we can make our spiritual life work? And so when we reach that, we just there's a kind of feeling that, oh, I'll give it a half attempt, but really I don't think it's going to work for me. Unless I name this thing, none of us will. We hide from it because we're afraid of, okay, let me look at that feeling. So I want to talk 
about the levels of pain that desire has. I want us to come to the point of sobriety so we can ask critical questions about the nature of desire so that we can wake up to it and not have it lead us, you know, like a carrot forever in a direction that makes no sense whatsoever when you look at it in any other way except through ignorance. So to do that, we have to pull it apart. We have to study it. We have to see what it gives us and what it doesn't. So what's it give us? It gives us, the, what we think it's going to give us is a better life. That's what we think desire is going to give us. We think it's going to fulfill the commercial. You know, that if I do this, I'll have a great life at the end of it. Not just a momentary experience, that would be too ephemeral. But if I keep marching this desire forward, then each moment will be a heightened in a uh, heightened feeling, even beyond the one that just occurred. So that I'll just keep going up. It's like escalators. And, of course, it doesn't do that. And so when we realize that we keep slipping back to every one step we take up, we take two steps back, or at least we take one step back, we have to add, okay, so that, that's, the payoff isn't the payoff. So then what's the limitation? If the payoff isn't what I thought it was, let me look and see the other side of the issue. So that's what allows us to undertake the real study of desire, to want to know it, because we see it, not, we see it having been disadvantaged, from a disadvantaged perspective. And we think, okay, so it's not what we... Th- But I want you to hear the courage that's necessary to ask these fundamental questions because, as I mentioned, to ask these questions are asking the very questions about the nature of each one of us. And so when you take on desire, you take on the very nature of how the mind is creating the sense of us, the sense of us, the imaginary sense of us. Where do we think the imaginary sense of us arises except in the abstract thought about life from a desiring point of view. So let's just look at some of the the pain that's associated with desire. And there are three aspects of the pain that I'd like to talk about. One is the pain that's driving the desire. The second is the pain that comes from the desire itself. And the third is the pain that comes after the desire. So there's a before and during and after pain. (laughs) I know this is a very uplifting talk. (laughs) But in fact it is, if you take it in its right perspective. So so first the pain uh, that drives the wanting. And uh, that's an interesting one because especially in our culture, because it's so predominant. You know, the culture wants us to have a longing inside ourselves. It's set up so that there'll be a kind of sense of lacking in us. Or ads would not work. If you felt completely sufficient, completely competent and complete, an ad would not work on you, right? So it's not malevolent, 
It's just configured by all of us, economically so, to drive the economy. This whole social fabric has to be built so that there is a sense of lacking that we are raised within. Some sense of just, if when everything is quiet, we're not. That there's a kind of white noise of disturbance back there. It's like we're not sure what that disturbance is, but it has us go to the refrigerator and just open the door and look in it. You know, or just get on the internet and just sort of lose ourselves in whatever world the internet is taking us into. And it's being driven, there's, if, you just, if we're just conscious of it, most of us are not conscious of this, of this. We think it's really more of a fundamental quality of our character. We think that the, we're are incomplete. Not that it's been instilled in our mind to believe as an assumption, but that there's something basically wrong with me. That there's something wrong with me. And if it doesn't come out in that way, there's just a, a kind of melancholy, a sort of you know, engendered sadness of life that, that has us, see, because it's an unpleasant feeling, has us looking for a pleasant feeling to cover it up. So the unpleasant feeling that we have lived with and have been partially culturally induced looks to have something cover up that ache. It wants anything. But what is best, what best does that is a pleasant feeling. Because pleasant feeling takes our eye off the pain of what we live with and places it on some momentary satisfactory thing that gives us a, a moment relief from that pain. Something missing in me. So I really want us to get a sense of this kind of background insufficiency that we live with. This inward poverty is a beautiful word, actually. It's kind of inward. There's something's just, I don't know, it's somehow... And, and to stop self-referencing it as, as a character flaw. If you had it to get... Nobody else is having it. Look around, you know. Everyone is feeling that. Even the, the wealthiest among us. Because no one can have continuous pleasant feelings where there isn't this interruption of pain that shows us what is behind driving much of that grasping behavior. Well, if this is left unattended, it turns into a kind of configuration of how we look at the world. Envy, jealousy, judgment. So much of that comes from just having assumed this basic inward sadness as our own. And so we project it out and think, you know, that we are the impoverished ones and if I had what they had, I could live in a different way. And again, the 
predominant emotions that come in there are as a kind of a melancholia. That's why in this culture there's so much depression. We just, it's in, almost intrinsic to the way we live. And we haven't learned how to look at depression or hold it in a way. I mean, no, it's, it's become so almost so ingrained in our chemistry that it's chemical. That it's because the brain has now infused the chemistry and within, within the way it looks at life from this despairing perception. All that means is it's more entrenched. It doesn't mean it's any more real. And restlessness, you know, if you, if you, if you just are quiet for a moment, there, there can be a sense of anxiety or a little bit of, you know, that something's a little off, that I need to do something. I'm not sure what it is, but I feel this feeling that something's a little off. And, and so I'm kind of like, I'm sort of at the edge of my nervous system trying to figure out what I need to do in order to correct the feeling I have within me. Or there can be this restlessness. Restlessness is very pervasive in this culture. And if you sit for a while and not do much, there's a sense that you should be doing something, that something is necessary because the, the quiet meets this sense of lacking. And all of that is the pain that drives the wanting, that, that instills a kind of, of neediness in us, prior to even the contact with the feeling. There's already, there's already a disposition in us to, to reach out, to move away from ourselves. You see, so pleasure not only represents pleasure, but it also represents a way to get out of our, our ongoing pain. So pleasure has a double, a, a double uh, emphasis in our culture. And second, there, there's the pain of the desire itself. I mean, if we just look at what desire feels like, it's unpleasant. If you really look at what desire feels like, not where you hope desire will go, that's pleasant. That's why you will put up with desire because it's directing you or seems to indicate that it's going somewhere and you have to get through this anxiety of spirit in order to get to that place. And we think of it as just what needs to occur in order for us to be satisfied at the end. But really, the satisfaction we're looking for is the end of the desire. Right? So I'm sitting here and I suddenly want chocolate. Say I have a... Oh, I really want a piece of chocolate. And uh, so it gets under my skin. And I'm looking around for anyone who's chewing on a chocolate bar. Or, <laughs> or I don't have any money with me, so that's a source of irritation. Or... So all of this desire has a kind of a frenzy to it. 
and finally, for, in some manipulative way, because I will, if it's strong enough, I'll be manipulative in order to satisfy it because the pain of it is so affecting me that I want to get over the pain of it, which to me and the way I think can only happen if I secure a piece of chocolate. Substitute whatever you want to for that. And then, of course, you get the piece of chocolate, but holding a piece of chocolate doesn't do anything to it, does it? Doesn't, there's still the inflaming of the desire and the frenzied activity and the nervousness and the restlessness and all of that, which is cultivating now an almost a panic situation for what? So at that point, the chocolate represents the ending of the pain of desire. You see? It itself, I mean, is pleasant, but that's not really where we embellish the journey. The journey is the end of desire, is the end of desire. And that's the only way we know how to do it. The only way we know how to hold life is to procure what it's, we're seen to be driven, that seems to be driving us. And then if we f- find and get what it is that seems to be driving us, we can end the unpleasantness that, of that drive. Okay, so we've got to wake up here a little bit. So what does the meditative student do? What does a Dharma student do? See, are you willing to do it? Because, because the mind gets very fixated, you know. It's the mind isn't going to give you an alternative way to see. The mind is not going to say, okay, you know, th- there's another choice here. There's only one choice. We, the, the discerning awareness has to give us that choice. We have to be willing to hold the state of desire. Now, why would we ever want to do that? Well, you'd want to do it if you knew that pursuing it wasn't going to satisfy desire for very long. In fact, the chocolate piece that you eat is going to last all of, what, 15 minutes before you want another? Or maybe you want a glass of milk to drink it down. I don't know, but it just keeps going on. There's only a momentary relief. And so because we haven't been paying attention to this sequence, this sequenceation of desire, momentary relief, then the start of a new desire, and then a momentary... We haven't been paying attention that there's no way to satisfy this. We just think that the next satisfaction is in, the, in, is, is in procuring the next thing we want. So we just keep doing that. God, our life has been filled with that since day one. That state of restlessness, of agitation. Something's bad. Something's wrong up here. When we simply are not able, even after 40, 50, or more years, onto this thing. It shows how deep the ignorance, doesn't it? How steeped we are in the conditioned patterns of living and how little awareness has any room at all to acknowledge those patterns. So at some point, 
when it's led us down the gauntlet of its of the scenario again and again the pain has built up sufficiently so that's that's it i'm sitting with a desire i said that's the true bottoming out Okay, okay, I'm sitting here. See, now the awareness is in, okay, is awareness desiring. I'm desiring. And the greater the desire, the tighter, the tighter the, uh, the tighter the clenching and the stronger the sense of me. So when it's very strong, there's a very strong sense of Focus, self-focus on finding whatever is necessary to get out of this this clenching, the drawstrings are are strangling us. And so, if you try to find your way out when the drawstrings are, you're, it's going to be hard to do. But as you start, that's why we back off this thing a little bit and we start noticing feelings and what happens to. How do we persuade ourselves that feelings, just simple feeling, needs to have anything done to it? At that level, if we catch it early enough, it's like, okay, so this is okay. No big deal. So it's warm in the room. You know, I don't have to make a, a fuss over that. And so as, as you begin to clear out the conditioned logic that takes us into the next step and the next step into the next step and then it just keeps moving forward at an ever quickening pace but even in desire you can do that I mean there's no place that is antithesis to awareness you might be refusing any inroad at that point or any willingness to pay attention just because of the strangulation that the state of mind has on us, but it doesn't mean that it can't be done. All you have to do at any particular time, all any of us have to do, is, aw- is awareness desiring. Now you've reframed it, you see. Now the issue is reframed. I'm desiring, but that's not the question. The question is, there's something outside of desire completely. You see? And you have to see that. You have, we have to actually take that situation on as an experience to see whether there is something that is not touched by desire. And so as we extract, as the, as the, as the drawstrings loosen, because we're asking that question, the energy that has been focused which all arrows go in like, I've got to have, start asking a question, the arrows go out. And so the arrows, once they come into some kind of equilibrium, now can feel the desire, but are truly seeing that there's an alternative way out of this event besides pursuing the desired object. And then there's the third pain. 
there's the pain of ongoing separation. And because we have run our life through the paradigm of desire, which means subject chasing object, when we look out from eyes that have only used that paradigm to consider what the world looks like, we see separation. And so that's what we're left with. That's the product of desire. That's what's after we've run on it for as many years as we've done it. It's fixed itself in consciousness sufficiently. So that's the way we see life. A child, when it comes out of the womb, is in the soup of things. It hasn't fixed life like that. And so when you begin to just see if, if we think we're going to get over desire by within the fixation of seeing subject and object, the fixation of seeing subject and object is the result of desire. So you have to ask questions about the very fixed way we see. Because as long as we believe something's out there and I'm insufficient in here, I'm naturally going to walk over there and try to complete myself through the obtaining of whatever that object might be. Because desire, in its ultimate sense, is a spiritual sense of... It's a... It's... Has a spiritual component. So just see if you can listen to this. There is a sense of completion in us. But as that sense of completion, that sense of integrity, of wholeness, as it bubbles up through the perspective of the mind, which has a subject and object relationship, it projects out that sense of completion that that is intrinsic to us, external to us. And so now I think I have to be complete by pursuing rather than just allowing, just being. And so the, the myopic, it's not even that, it's more like the refractive quality of light when it enters water, it distort, the distorting quality of what happens in the perception, within the perception of subject and distant object, that sense of completion gets refracted along with that. So I look at something pleasant outside and think that's what I need for the sense of completion inside. So I've lost that basic intrinsic wholeness that is there if we are quiet enough and not driven by what the mind sees. So in some ways you have to negate the way the mind looks at the world, the way the mind holds the world, the way the mind believes the world to be in order to regain that sense of completion that's here. Which would be impossible if there is only one organ to us. If there is only the mind, if there's only the brain, that's the only thing it could do. Because the brain is built now to see life in that way. But there's the heart. 
There's the organ of the heart, which is complete and whole and knows its wholeness, although it doesn't say it in words. It feels itself and awareness as whole. And so anytime we're willing to feel the awareness that surrounds something, rather than invest in the something that we feel we're missing, we come back in, we change organs and come back in within the sway of the complete and whole and sense of completion. But you have to, you have to be willing to do this. Are we willing to explore our desires? Are we willing to ask questions that are critical of the way we've lived our entire life? In what areas are, are my mind, does my mind dwell? Why does it keep dwelling on this? Why am I making such a fantasy relationship with this particular person, place, or thing? And then watch how desire spends certain emotions about ourselves. And from those emotions comes a whole backlog of thoughts about ourselves as well. So that when we feel that we don't obtain our desired results, watch what comes feeding through that sense of dep deprivation, that sense of I'm never good enough, or all of the ways that we have assumed ourselves to be just come flooding through, emotionally flooding the situation. All of that is the result of psychic work. All we've done, all the assumptions we've built, you t we drop the dam, you break a hole in the dam, and that's what comes flooding through the gap in the dam. Nothing's going to fulfill your sense of longing. Okay? I got each one of you and I'm looking you right in the face. I'm going to say, nothing is going to fulfill your sense of longing. I'm looking you right in the eye. Can you look me back in the eye? Do you look away? Nothing is going to fulfill your sense of longing. Now, what are you going to do? Because there is something you can do. You just can't keep doing what you've been doing. What are you really missing in this moment? Your mind says you're incomplete. You going to believe it? If you do... You're just stimulating that sense of incompletion for the rest of your life. You're feeding it. No experience is to be supported or denied. Especially the sense of incompletion. Now we're ready. Now we can break the chain. Okay. Can we sit for a minute or two? Nothing is going to end your sense of longing. Tell yourself that. See that. Let it establish an intention in you. If you believe that to be true, if you know it to be true, not believe it, if you know it to be true, bring it up. Make it conscious in your mind. 
Don't keep playing the old maid card. We've lost this round. And if you play that card again, you're going to lose the next round. Let's just face that. Nothing is going to end that. So what am I going to do? Let there an intention be formed from that acknowledgement, from that truth. Let an intention be formed. And then let me move in that direction from now on. Not in the fantasy way I believe my life can become. Okay. Anyone that has any questions or comments? Uh, if somebody could turn on the back lights over here. It's getting to that time in the year when the light is in remission. Yes. So the question has to do with from time to time the truth slips through the camouflage of all of our fantasies and we sense that something's back there that is fulfilling, complete, whole and it's enticing. It's enticing us and there's a strong desire then for that. And uh, I, let me just say that I would want you to fan uh, that. I would want you to uh, want, but not in the ways fan the, that you want more of a relation with that. Fan it in the right direction. I want to know what that is. I want to know what that is. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order to have to know more about that. All right. So then you start discarding everything that seems to obstruct it because it's obviously not. So desires are clearly not, not equivalent to that experience. And so I don't have to spend a lot of time playing out all my desires because it doesn't hold a candle to that particular experience. So you just, you just let that form an intention in you to move your life in that direction. Now, you know, for me, the, there's a difference between the heart's yearning for completion and the mind's desiring. Okay, so what you experienced was the sense of completion held within the heart, you might say, or just a sense of being complete that desires keep fooling us. So when you get in proper perspective of that, you realize there's nothing you need to do to be complete. You don't have to go somewhere or perform some ritual in order for completion to be there. You just have to eliminate all the sideways we get lost, the sidetracks that we go on, you see? So at some point a, a maturation of you occurs 
so that you realize that you don't have to do something in order to be complete. You just have to negate what it is that you're already doing to find it and discover that. And what you negate is the movement of mind that keeps separating itself into a desired object and a pursuing subject. Okay? So that makes sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. What's it? What, uh, a lot of gratitude. Gratitude, yes. Gratitude. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. Would you say, yes. Would you speak more about gratitude? Yes. You mean, is that what you mean, that sense of the heart's completion? Yes. Yes. Okay, so I, my poetry that I read before the video starts uh, is often uh, filled, has gratitude or appreciation, that sort of thing. And the question is, is that what I mean by the heart? sense of completion. It is. The heart, when you have a moment that was expressed earlier, uh, you, I mean, most, many people, even if they've never learned to do that, <laughs> this is what they do. That's a kind of a universal, it's a, the prayer or the sense of acknowledgement or sense of gratitude or just lowering your head. There's a, there's a sense of, of abiding appreciation life. When it's seen out of the fixed way that we perceive it, subject and object related. And, and it fills you with gratitude. It fills you with appreciation. It, even with, in the poem I read was filled with, you know, climate change and all the disrupting. It doesn't matter. Appreciation is there anyway. That's what the poet was trying to get at. It's there because it's intrinsic. It's not, it can't be disrupted. The earth could crack in two. It'd still be there. And that's why we only have one way. Right? So what, at first what we try to do is try to be appreciative. And that's a, a, a very ill-formed effort to, to try to make ourselves feel something that we don't really feel. You know, thank you. <laughs> with her eyes rolled. You know. But when it's the heart's appreciation, there it's it's an abiding appreciation. It really, I mean, I don't know how to say it except that. And so there'll be moments in which there'll be, the sense of buoyancy or the sense of lightness will come and there's just this, this warmth of heart. There are many ways to describe it. You see, it's like the heart warms, appreciation, gratitude. It just depends upon the circumstances to what aspect or quality arises within that. But all of those qualities are coming from a completed heart. And what we're doing from the bifurcated way we see is we're trying to make an attempt continuing to see in separation, we try to make an attempt at some form of unification by trying to be appreciative or gracious or noble or loving. And it's phony. And I don't mean it's, it's not a worthy effort. It just never, it's never completes itself. There's always a part of you that knows that you're pretending. Don't you? 
And when you're not pretending, it's natural. It just is there. You don't even, nobody comes up to you and says, wow, you have such a, it's just what comes out. I'm much more interested in what's authentically there than what we try to cultivate to be there. Believe me, it's nicer to have a neighbor who's cultivating kindness than one <laughs> who's tr who isn't, right? So it's not a bad human trait, but it's not a complete story. It's not the complete spiritual story. Yes? Yes. That rings a bell with the, a couple of weeks ago it was, uh, uh, there are aversive types, greedy types, and I can't remember the last one. Deluded. Deluded. Is there a relationship, and what is it, or am I mixing two things that don't belong together? Between the types, the personality types, and... It's the same, okay, if you live long enough with the tone of desiring that like your cup is only half filled and you, you know, that sort of everything is better than what you have, you have a very strong sense of inward poverty and that leads to the belief that, you know, other people have something you don't and you're constantly trying to procure or make yourself equivalent. If you live long enough within that pattern, it forms a character, which we call the greedy type, right? Where you just live within. That's, that's the way you see life. Next, week after next, we're going to talk about grasping. Grasping is really interesting because it's hardened. It's like the character. It's hardened, you know, like your view and opinions, right? Like your liberal view, right? Don't you, you know... Okay, you can have my candy bar, but by God, right? That's where your that's where your teeth growling, fingernails flashing, that that sense of betrayal is that's taken from the, the grasping of that, right? Well, the character is very I mean conforms around that and because it thinks its very life is at stake without it. So now it becomes the that's the grasping form of a series of wanting episodes that has led to that character for me. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> yes, last question. Set, set aside the insufficiency? Yeah. Good. Yeah. And it lasts about a Okay, so 
So the question has to do with having a moment relief from the insufficiency and a moment is so enticing that you want it back again. Um, you see, that's why we're doing this dependent origination. You see, the point of it is to realize you can't bring it back. To, that there's a sequenzation here, you know, that experience holds a particular feeling and moves through this whole sequenzation of grasping and, and all of that. And for you to have a moment in which that's not happening and then go, la- go back to the grasping of it, back into the condition formation of it, is, antith- is antith- antithetical, right? So that's why we're doing this, is to show you that that can't be done and to show you that it's useless to even try. That does not mean, that does not mean you can't form an intention. I want to know what life is like to be lived that nanosecond I experience. What's, it, what's a life lived like that lives that? I don't know how to get there. I have no idea how to get there. I just have the intention to move it in that direction. And I will do whatever is necessary in order to discover and abide there. Okay, so that's a, di- see, that's a different resolution of heart than trying to sequence it back into a desire format and reproduce it. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.